Welcome. I am Sheila Murthy, president and founder of the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us today. We have with us two of our amazing and brilliant Murthy Law Firm attorneys, Adam Rosen and Brian Green, both of whom have been with the firm for several years now and focus their practice with respect to de- helping employers when there is a federal agent that knocks on your door. I know it's really scary for you as a company or a business or an employer the minute you see someone in a uniform walking in the door or flashing a badge and demanding from the receptionist to speak to someone in charge at the company. So we hope that today's discussion will help you understand some of the areas that the government looks to try and nail employers and how you can try to respond We have several attorneys here, but particularly with Adam and Brian, who focus in representing companies with specific agencies of the Department of Labor, like the Department of Labor, the Department of State, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, and USCIS. So, Adam, what type of investigations does ICE conduct that involves employers? Well, ICE, also Immigration and Customs Enforcement, typically conducts investigations of employers in two areas. The first is compliance with the Form I-9 requirements, and the second is conducting raids looking for undocumented or unauthorized workers. Okay. And so, you know, from an employer's perspective, when an employer wonders how seriously should I take the risk of an ICE investigation, remember that ICE is a law enforcement agency that has the power to detain workers, to seize property, and as a result, disrupt the company's operations. ICE investigators may also, just that their very presence could result in in negative press coverage and negative feeling and fear among employees, which we have seen you know, with different companies and different cases across time. So, Brian, what if the company doesn't even employ any foreign workers or has very few foreign workers? Should the company that has no foreign workers still have any concerns with respect to an ICE investigation? Yes, they should, Sheila. The The law that brought about the I-9 requirements, the Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986 requires that all employers, regardless of having any foreign workers or not, all employers must verify the identity and the work authorization of new hires. And it's anyone hired after November 6, 1986. So for the past you know, 25 plus years, there's been this requirement that every company, in fact, even if you hire someone to work in your backyard on a labor assignment, you're supposed to do an I-9 for that person with a very few exceptions. So any company out there that's doing hiring has to comply with I-9 requirements. And if you don't, ICE can come in and investigate, levy fines against the company. And yes, everyone has this responsibility. Okay. And what are the common mistakes that employers tend to make when they're completing or retaining Form I-9s? Luckily, Adam and I have been auditing companies for a number of years now, and we see frequently uh, committed violations. One in the IT consulting industry is when an employee is sent the I-9 
and maybe they're in California and the company's in New Jersey, if the if that process is not done in the same place, it's a violation. So the worker has to come in and meet with the employer or the employer has to have an agent go and do this. But those two people have to meet together and then you're supposed to compare the documents a person has to the person, look at them and see, is this the person on this driver's license, on this passport, on this visa? So remote I-9s are not allowed. Employers often forget to sign I-9s or date them, and maybe sometimes they go back and fill in the dates later on, and that's not allowed. And other um, problems are asking for social security numbers when the employer is not in the, enrolled in the E-Verify program. So uh, we see a lot of different violations, and when you audit enough, you see the same patterns over and over, but employers may not realize that they're doing these things. That's one of the reasons why we, we recommend audits. Okay, thank you, Brian. Uh, Adam, let's come to you because I know that it is much more common for all of those participating in today's phone calls who process H-1B petitions and green cards that investigations by the U.S. Department of Labor are pretty common with respect to the labor condition application, which is filed in connection with an H-1B petition. Uh, so, you know, what what does this, in terms of the agency itself, Explain a little bit about the agency which conducts the LCA compliance investigations and what triggers an investigation by the U.S. Department of Labor Wage and Hour Division. Okay, sure, Sheila. Now, investigations of the LCA, which is filed with the Department of Labor, are conducted by the Department of Labor, but by a different office. You're, the Wage and Hour Division of the Department of Labor has regional offices across the United States, and they have agents who will be sent out to conduct these investigations, go out to companies to ask for documentation as part of this investigation. Now, generally, an investigation and possible administrative proceedings can be triggered by one of two occurrences. The first kind is where a complaint is filed by a person or a group which has a, a complaint against the company, which have been adversely affected by an alleged violation of the LCA requirements. In this particular situation, the complaint should be filed by this person who, who has a problem no later than 12 months after this alleged violation occurred. Now, violations commonly include an employer's fa failure to pay the required wage rate, and if the employer has not been paying the required wage, then the violation is continuous and therefore will be subject to investigation by the Wage and Hour Division regardless of when the failure to pay the wage initially occurred. And so it is important for that reason to be mindful of what your LCA is requiring. Now, the other way an investigation can uh, be triggered is by the Department of Labor itself. Now, since 2004, the investigative authority that the Wage and Hour Division has been able to exercise allows the agency to conduct an investigation upon receiving credible information from known sources. The 12-month deadline rule, which applies to filing complaints that I mentioned uh, just a little bit earlier, also applies to investigations initiated by the Department of Labor itself. So in other words, the information would be well, would be serving as a basis for an investigation should be received by the agency no later than 12 months after the alleged violation. Okay. So just so I know we've you've explained it Adam in the context of what the complainant can do and how they can file a complaint, but everybody on this conference call is really the employer. Right. So from the employer's perspective, 
for whatever reason, if the employer believed that an employee truly didn't deserve to be paid because the employee wasn't available for work, the employee had asked for FMLA medical leave, the employee's wife and their family was having a baby, and so they had taken time off, and he didn't owe the money, but for whatever reason, now there's a complaint because the employee suddenly says, hey, I demand my money, I'm going to demand my employer to sue. You're saying that there's no time frame, that even though there's a 12-month window for the employee to file the complaint, because it's considered an ongoing violation, it could be filed pretty much any time, and the Department of Labor can go after you and harass the poor employer at any point? There is a potential for an invest for a for a violation to be considered ongoing. Keep in mind that the purpose of the wage and hour division is to investigate these complaints. And so that's that's where they're going to be coming from. Now the the usefulness of a good lawyer is to argue, if possible, that the violation has not been continuous, to argue that the 12-month period ended, that perhaps the investigation has been started after the 12-month period. Um, but again, this is typically the investigation will you in that situation, the investigation where a company may be challenging the the appropriateness of the investigation even being initiated will um, will have to the investigation will have to run its course. The findings letter will, um, from the Department of Labor, from the Wage and Hour, will have to be issued, and then the company will have to go challenging this in an appeal before an administrative law judge. Okay. And so, you know, and Brian Green will discuss this a little bit uh, in a little in a little bit. But sometimes it might be worthwhile, despite the wrongness of the claim, it might be worthwhile in some instances to simply pay the fine because it might not be worthwhile going through the additional expense of hiring an attorney to challenge an appeal, which itself you might not get a decision from an administrative law judge for a year, two years or more. Well, I guess it depends on the amount at stake and what's involved because many companies might be wanting to do it. Definitely. And some on principle may say, heck, I didn't violate the law. I don't care what it costs. I'm going to fight this damn thing. I mean, obviously, yes. within reason, nobody's going to fight to shut down the company. But we really have to sometimes people do things for strategic reasons, sometimes yes. for business reasons, sometimes to act as a disincentive for other employees in filing false complaints or filing quasi clean complaints yes. just to make a point. So now you're saying either an individual or an agreed party or even the U.S. Department of Labor by itself can go ahead and do it, which is a little more scary because now you're opening up Pandora's box with multiple parties, multiple right. Employees. And that's why compliance with the immigration law across the board is important because one agency can can or might refer things to another agency for further investigation. And that's a good point that Adam's making because as we're talking, we started off with uh, part of the Department of Homeland Security, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE. Now we're talking about the U.S. Department of Labor. And we're going to explain briefly about other agencies, but it is a little bit scary if any of us thinks about this because... You know, to have different federal agencies having so much power to walk into our premises and start questioning our employees is a scary thought. So, Brian, how will the company know if they are actually subject to some kind of an investigation? What's the general procedure that the Department of Labor has to follow? Once a complaint is received by Department of Labor, they have to first vet the complaint and see, as Adam talked about, if that window of time is going to prohibit the claim or allow it. If they decide that, yes, this claim has some basis, then they will normally issue a letter to the employer, and that letter may arrive by mail, or you may have a Department of Labor investigator come to your door and and deliver the letter to the owner of the company or the president of the company. And um, that's the point usually where we get a phone call saying, hey, can you help me explain explain what do we have to do, but normally that letter asks for documents within two or three days. So it's a very fast process once that written notification comes to the employer. 
Okay. So during the period that there's an investigation ongoing, is the employer still allowed to continue to file LCAs? And how, will they will the Department of Labor approve those LCAs so that H-1B petitions can also be filed? Yes. The employers are not prevented from filing LCAs. The, uh, the idea of debarment is a penalty that comes after investigations are over. So employers should go about their normal business. They should file LCAs. They should actually do their very, very best to comply with the, um, the the Department of Labor regulations about H-1Bs, but there's nothing stopping them from filing LCAs or PERM applications or I-140 petitions. Okay. And what different kinds of violations does the Department of Labor investigator test for and look for in these documents? There's a wide variety of possible violations. Some of them are paperwork violations that may seem a little trivial, and but what usually causes the investigations is employees who think that they were either benched and were owed money. It could be employees who think, hey, I was supposed to be paid $80,000 a year, but I only got paid $57,000 a year. So money often triggers the investigations. It could be a failure to pay required wages. It could be paying a incorrectly low wage. Some workers will claim that they should be a wage level two or three worker, but they were classified as a wage level one. And you also have the problem of deductions. Sometimes people agree to loans. Sometimes workers have given money for H-1B legal fees. If those monies are deducted out of paychecks and not done correctly, that could be a violation. And the money trail often ends up with someone complaining a couple years later maybe too late, but the complaint often revolves around money to begin with. But once that complaint is in the process, then the Department of Labor can find any violation that they find, and they can start finding these other more technical violations along the way. Okay. Thank you, Brian. Uh, so, Adam, let's get back to you. What happens at the end of all of this investigation? So you've gone through this entire process. Now the wage and hour division investigator may issue a determination of a violation or violations that um, the investigator finds. So a hearing can be requested, and that's essentially an appeal of the determination letter's findings. If there's no hearing requested, then the findings will become final, and the penalties will be enforced. And these penalties are going to be monetary and will oftentimes also include actual debarment, meaning that the uh, company will not be able to file or get approved an LCA. Um, USCIS won't approve H-1B petitions or I-140 petitions, and Department of Labor won't approve PERM applications. So if the hearing is requested, then it's supposed to be held within 120 days of the investigator's determination, and a decision by the administrative law judge should be issued within another 120 days after this hearing. However, these deadlines uh, can be extended, and practically speaking, they oftentimes are extended. Um, the, the administrative law judge will then, when they make their decision, will either affirm what the wage and hour division said, deny it, or reverse it. And they can do it in part or in whole, depending on the arguments that are presented to them by the, the company, with if they have a counsel or if they are by themselves, and also by the, by the Department of Labor themselves. Okay, thanks, Brian. Uh, thanks, um, Adam, I'm sorry. Brian, coming back to you. So can the administrative law judge's determination be appealed? And why would they want to do that? Yes, they can be appealed. There is a board called the Administrative Review Board, which is staffed by judges from the Department of Labor. And they review administrative law judge decisions in lots of different areas, including H-1B cases. So the appeal process is there. And the reason, the reason to appeal could be the judge may have made a mistake. There could be just, you know, mistakes in the decision in the calculations of back wages. 
But another reason is that if the Department of Labor judge seems to have been too far on the DOL side, the ARB, Administrative Review Board, may be a more fair uh, take on the case. And if you don't appeal to the ARB, then the case is over. It's final at that point. If you do the appeal to the ARB, you may someday be able to appeal to a U.S. federal court, and a U.S. district court judge who doesn't deal with these cases all the time may then give another perspective on the case, and that whole process will delay the imposition of the penalties, which keeps the debarments from kicking in. So if you have cases that are in perm process, I-140s out there, if you have employees who need seventh-year H-1B extensions, this appeal process to federal court delays the debarment ongoing and you can continue your, your business operations. Who would be who would qualify as an interested party, Brian? Is it just the employer? No, also employees, if they don't like the decision by the ALJ judge, they can also do an appeal. So it's uh, anyone who was probably served with a copy of the decision would probably be an interested party. So it's interesting. So an employer could actually be very strategic, even if they know they're going to lose ultimately, keep buying time so they can keep processing H-1B LCAs and filing H-1 petitions to postpone a possible debarment or postpone uh, stuff. Um, and, and I guess, I mean, it's more strategic. And the question is a cost-benefit analysis, like everything else in life, uh, simple rule 101 of economics in deciding to file such appeals. So, for example, uh, Brian, if the employer becomes aware of such violations because of the filing of the complaint or because the DOL brought, you know, sent an, 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 uh, a DOL agent to the premises, uh, can the employer do something now to correct this problem so that to they can minimize their penalties? They can. They should... First of all, I think they should consult with an attorney that's qualified. But on their own, they can certainly try to figure out what's going on with their their documents, what's going on with their employees. And they do need to take what we call good faith efforts at compliance. So in my opinion, the first thing you do is find out what's going wrong, do everything you can to comply with all the rules and regulations, because one of the decisions they make, the Department of Labor makes at the end of the case, is when do we stop looking at back wages, when we stop this investigation, if they find ongoing problems, they will keep extending the investigation longer and longer and longer. And that case could go for two, three, four years. And it's obviously the amount of money involved at that point, whether it's back wages or fines, will just keep going up. The good faith I just talked about can also be a defense. So if you're really trying hard to comply with the rules, that can help you with the DOL investigator, the investigator's uh, boss, which is usually a district director, can also help you with the administrative law judge and maybe even with the review board afterwards. If you're not complying and you're doing it flagrantly, it works in the opposite way. It can actually hurt you. Okay. So it's a really good tip that you just shared for businesses and companies that even if, God forbid, some of us and some of you have made mistakes, uh, it's not the kiss of death. You still can try to minimize your uh, penalties by trying to show good faith effort to try to correct those uh, with your remedies. Um, and, and obviously, I'm going to speak and say something that might look like Rule 101, which is the best way to avoid an investigation is, of course, to try to comply with all the gazillion rules and laws and regulations. But it's not, it's certainly easier said than done. It's not that simple and easy as we all know, because some of it may be purely innocent or, or inadvertent. But as you also know, ignorance of the law is never an excuse for individuals, but even more so for companies and businesses and employers that presumably have the wherewithal to go hire 
a competent attorney to help you. So as a company, you should have an established internal system of H-1B and LCA compliance. This may include internal monitoring of your H-1B process, ensure that you have proper wage determinations and prevailing wage sources that are taken into account, payment of the proper wages unless you have a documented proof of why you're not paying the wage for a particular employee at a particular given time, retaining and maintaining your public access files in the manner as required by the USCIS and Department of Labor, and have periodic internal audits. And if you can afford to do it, I would even do random or detailed audits through an outside law firm like the Murthy Law Firm, where we could do it on a flat fee, re very reasonable basis to make it certainly affordable. And, you know, what do they say? A stitch in time saves nine. So a small upfront cost could save you tons of money and headache and hassles down the road. And I, and I would just mention one thing um, in, in support of that, and not just because I'm another attorney at the Murthy Law Firm, but from my years <laughs> of experience um, conducting internal audits on behalf of companies of uh, public access files in particular, what I have and my colleagues have also found is that while um, because this is so complex, there are mistakes that do happen, even with the best of intentions, that um, while there is certainly variation from uh, company to company, um, when there are mistakes that we identify in just even a sampling of files, they tend to be the same mistakes that are repeated throughout the company's public access files. So even a review of 20 public access files, if the company has 200 public access files, most likely would have, all 200 would have the same uh, mistakes. Or similar, the and do. then once you are able or to point similar. out the repeats, they can go in internally and make them correct them. Because right. if you make the changes before the government comes in and finds out, even if it is after the initial hiring, for example, in the I-9 context, you still are given a lot more protection because you took care of the problem before the government slapped your wrist. Right. So even a company that has limited budget for hiring outside counsel to do something like an audit, having an audit of even a sampling of public access files can be extremely useful. Um, that information then being taken and then and then applied to the full number of public access files that the company has. Right, right. So it's extremely reasonable. It's very affordable, and it may give a lot of peace of mind and very worth considering for a, practically every business. I would say, even if you have a small internal team, because most smaller companies tend not to have in-house general counsel that focuses ex exclusively on immigration law. So if they have just a paralegal or support staff or an attorney that does you know, 10 areas of the law, then having somebody that just does this type of work would really be a um, overall a savings. Um, so let's change gears and go to the USCIS's agency called the FDNS. So what exactly, Adam, I'll come back to you again. So in terms of the USCIS, what is the agency that does their investigations and what exactly does this FDNS do? Well, so FDNS stands for Fraud Detection and National Security. They are a uh, unit of the Immigration Service with their own staff of uh, officers and agents, uh, many of whom are f uh, former um, adjudicators of petitions. Um, they have a large office stationed at the Vermont Service Center. Um, but they do have, uh, FDNS does have officers working at the various USCIS service centers across the United States. Sometimes they can even be located at uh, field offices. And they investigate background checks. They may check the, uh, the process that the Immigration Service puts the 
petition through, they'll check the accuracy of an H-1B petition. They may look into suspected or confirmed fraud. They may simply take a random sampling of an H-1B petition and go down to the address of the company or the address of the work site where the person, the beneficiary, is supposed to be working to look into whether or not that everything that was told to the immigration service is in fact correct. And so what may also happen is that FDNS may refer leads that they developed to law enforcement agencies like Immigration and Customs Enforcement or another um, another government agency involved in these kinds of issues, the Visa Fraud Unit of the Department of State that we'll discuss a little bit later. And sometimes they'll even refer um, leads to local or federal prosecutors because these are the, the federal prosecutors in particular are the ones who are prosecuting things like document fraud, tax violations, forgeries, backdating of documents, uh, and, and so um, FDNS plugs into an area that um, has not has sort of fallen by the wayside because it's not primary, primarily the area of focus for other agencies like Immigration Customs Enforcement or even the Department of Labor's Wage and Hour Division. Okay, thanks, Adam. And I'll ask you one more question, but as I'm listening to you explaining and speaking, you know, I'm thinking, putting myself in the shoes of a business owner or company president or manager, especially someone who's not particularly savvy with legal issues. And my thought is, gosh, this seems so in almost innocent and innocuous compared to all those horrible crimes and murders going on. Why the heck are they spending so much time, money, effort, and energy in an economy like this? Because that's a question I get asked all the time. I'm contributing to the economy. I'm giving wages. I'm hiring people. My company is trying to stay afloat in a tough, tough economy. I'm dealing with all this, and they're coming and slapping wrists and slapping fines and making sure we shut down. And I really get a little bit annoyed when I think about it doesn't make sense, but I guess at the end of the day, whatever the rules and whatever the laws and whatever the regulations, we are all subject to and need to comply with them. And it's important to keep in mind, because it's very true, Sheila, it's important to keep in mind, though, that there are actual bad actors out there. There are people who are trying to take advantage of the system. And as with, with many different things that we all experience and encounter, there are these extra rules that have been put in place and extra procedures and processes and penalties that do catch innocent actors or people who make innocent mistakes into a system that's designed to protect against uh, to protect against actual bad actors. We had um, somebody who hired us about a year or two ago for, to respond to a notice of intent to revoke on an H-1B petition, and there had been an investigation by FDNS, I think it was about a year prior to immigration actually issuing the NOR, and one of the issues that we caught that they raised in the NOR was that there was an issue with, that they had with the address, the location of the company, but what we, in looking at the timeline and looking at where the company had been and where they were, in fact, located at the time of the NOR, we found that one of the, one of the issues was the fact that um, the company had moved, and that's why immigration was so having there was an issue. no fraud. It was there just was an no, innocent move. Exactly, and so that's why it's important when you get something like when you have an FDNS officer knock to handle that carefully, and we'll get to, into that a little bit more in a moment. Okay. But when you get a notice from immigration about one of your H-1B cases, don't panic. Take think about it carefully, read it over carefully, and consult with a lawyer. So, what are the main areas that the FDNS? officers are trying to look at, particularly with H-1B petitions, because that's one of the biggest concerns of many of those participating in today's conference call. The areas? 
The, um, the main areas that they will look at is for the work location because they want to know where the beneficiary is, is located. So if a worker has moved to a new location and the employer, for example, has only done an update to the labor condition application, then FDNS is not going to know about the new location. When you file an LCA to Department of Labor and it's certified, Department of Labor does not tell USCIS about it. And so when FDNS does their site visit, it may very well result in a notice of intent to revoke the approval of that H-1B petition. Okay, so the three main areas they look at are the work location, the job duties to ensure that the person is doing the job duties and the details of the company, whether everything that the company claimed that it was doing and their number of employees, their workspace, the size of their premises, et cetera, is accurate. So Brian, then does FDNS still visit the work locations to check on H-1B workers? They do, Sheila. The problem is that if a company has been using what we used to call the updated LCA uh, policy, if they're just doing an update and doing a new LCA when they move a worker to an end client, if the FDNS officer comes to that work location that's listed in the HMB petition, the worker is not there, and they may say, oh, well, you know, this person moved to another location four months ago. That's going to generate the, the notice intent to revoke that Adam and you have been discussing. So it, we do still see the visits happening, and while many HMB petitions may not be automatically required, that's the tension is that if the employer's don't file an amendment petition, then the USCIS does not know where the worker currently is, and then the risk that they come to the work location, they don't find the worker, and they just leave and report back to the USCIS service center that the person's not there, that starts that NOR ball rolling, and that's where the company is is in jeopardy of losing that worker. Okay, good. And I know this kind of ties in very closely to the question that many of you are have asked in consultations uh, with your immigration counsel, and we certainly get our fair share here at the Murthy Law Firm, where the question is, well, why should I waste my money filing an H-1B amendment? Do I really need to do it? Is it required? Where is it written in the law that it's required? And the fact is that the USCIS has actually not published a specific there's nothing in the statute itself, which means the black letter law, and there's no interpretation clearly and definitively stating that uh, an employer has to file an H-1B amendment when an employee changes a work location. So a lot of companies have simply been using uh, filing an amended LCA because that is free and there's no cost to the employer and putting that internally in the same H-1B petition. But then what's happening sometimes is that the USCIS is then issuing a notice of intention to revoke or NOR that you just heard both Brian and Adam mention and when the NOR is issued, it puts both the employer and the employee and any other intermediate companies under a great deal of stress because now they're not sure if they no longer have the permission to live and work in the United States merely because of not having filed an H-1B amendment. So the real safest approach, and I know it's a little bit of money, but hopefully you would just you wouldn't extend it. You would just file an amendment with the $320 filing fee, especially if you're doing it internally um, when the work location changes or if the job duties involved change materially. So, Brian, let me come back then to you, which, which is other than filing the amended H-1 petition, what can employers do to prepare and be you know, adequately prepared for an FDNS visit? It's really important that the company have an action plan already developed before FDNS comes knocking on the door. So you need to have 
you know, a set of instructions that your company is going to abide by. So when the officer comes in and shows the badge, that he or she is not allowed into the company. They're, they're kept in the reception area. And you need to know who's going to greet the FDNS officer. Where is that person going to be taken to? Are you going to have a conference room set up where there's no employee files or no computer terminals in there? You need to know um, who's going to Xerox a copy of the person's identification card. You know, what's going to happen when this person comes? Everyone has to have their duties already set up. And you do, if you have a counsel that you work with on immigration cases, that's the point where you want to call them and say, hey, we have an officer here. Can you come down? Can you talk to the officer on the phone? But you need to have a plan about what happens when. And if you have that, then there's less stress on the workers and you're less likely to have the officer walking around asking questions when that person could be uh, placed in one place and one person who knows what's going on could be the person designated to speak to that person. Very good. And and I know a lot of companies also pick up the phone and call, whether it's Murthy Law Firm or someone else, to say, what should I do? And a lot of times, if a lawyer is available, uh, we can be on conference call during the entire session to make sure that you as a company owner or president or HR manager or immigration manager doesn't inadvertently provide additional or extra extraneous information that could potentially get the company into trouble. So it may be another few hundred dollars worth uh, just to have that extra protection that we haven't volunteered uh, information that could be much, much more expensive down the road. Okay, so now we've gone through three of the main agencies, and now we're going next to the U.S. Department of State, which is our wonderful consular officers around the world, and their unit is generally called the AFU or anti-fraud unit. So, Adam... Now, uh, what exactly does the Department of State do and why do they get involved with this whole process? Well, they operate the visa fraud unit out of their Bureau of Diplomatic Security with their DS special agents, and they have their own badges that you want to be noting down if they come to your door. And they'll be investigating instances of visa fraud inside the U.S. and in the countries where the consulate is located. So let's say, for example, somebody goes in to apply for an H-1B visa in a consulate in Chennai, and they present documents, and there's something about either the applicant or the company or maybe even the uh, employer in the experience letter, something that raises an eyebrow or some suspicion. They may have officers in this visa, the anti-fraud uh, unit or visa fraud unit that are located in India that will be sent out to the company's office there in India to speak with somebody to get details about this particular applicant. Or there may be something about the the H-1B petitioner who this person is applying to get the visa to work for in the United States. And they may, in fact, go um, have somebody in the United States, an agent in, in the U.S., go and conduct an investigation, gathering information there. Or it may be something as, uh, I suppose, easy for them, at least, as um, running a check through a database um, because they suspect there's some kind of fraud. So it could be any range of activities that will be um, handled either by um, officers, agents in, in the country where the application is made. It might be something where they have to get help from agents in another country. Um, but this is also all things that are typically going to be triggered by something that happens at the visa application process at the particular consulate. And occasionally we've seen where candidates who've applied for a visa and the consular officer has found fraud after they make them sign the statement. They've actually called law enforcement in those countries <coughs> to get actually involved in addition to using 
uh, U.S. government because if the person is a citizen of a foreign country, then they get the police, for example, involved in India or in Europe, in whichever country, to say, take this person. And they actually put those people in detention, take those people into detention for several days. And people have told me of very difficult experiences where they haven't even understood clearly what's been going on and what's happened. So to to kind of try to summarize and wrap up, because I know we're very conscientious of trying to make it between 30 and 45 minutes, and we're already around 35 minutes, I just want to try and maybe wrap up really briefly. So from an employer's or company's perspective, what exactly is the best way to try to save costs, save times, clean up our act, do internal audits, keep our paperwork together so that and we talk, touched upon this briefly earlier on when we talked about it. But what is the best way to conduct the internal audit internally and how can we try to help a company and how can we you work with an outside lawyer as a business, as a company to save money, save time and deal with these problems rather than suddenly something happening to you? So the best way is a an audit. Um, many companies will do a self audit. There's always the possibility, and this is sometimes this by some attorneys it is recommended having an outside party do an internal audit. Um, generally speaking, an internal audit should be conducted by somebody who is designated to do so, who has the knowledge to do so, um, which somebody that can specialize in I nine LCA and H one B compliance issues. Um, the Murthy Law Firm has conducted audits of I-9 compliance, LCA compliance for a number of companies of different sizes. Uh, we've, have, we've had companies where they've had no violations as well with, unfortunately, significant violations. Uh, as part of this service, we will usually review the company's documents pertaining to the completion of their I-9s as well as the LCA and the public access file as well as their h one petitions filed with the USCIS. And after the initial assessment, we'll usually make a recommendation on the specific violations that we have found, as well as on general business practices, as, we, as we've mentioned today, with regards to um, good I-9 and LCA compliance and, and practices. Uh, if an investigation is already underway by the government, then our attorneys um, will um, we may represent the company in negotiations with ICE or Department of Labor before and after the issuance of the determination letter. And if there is a hearing that's involved, then our attorneys have um, made filings and we do attend hearings if needed on behalf of a company in front of the administrative law judge and filed appeals to the administrative review board. I know that both of you have traveled to different parts of the country to represent and help companies on a routine basis, but also to just give you some insight and help. I mean, there are times when we as uh, the law firm at the Murthy Law Firm, we may evaluate a case and we may actually recommend that it may not be worth hiring a lawyer and paying and going for it and going and fighting it, especially if the fine uh, amount that's being imposed is comparatively pretty reasonable or small, unless, again, we want to challenge it or fight on a principal issue or to set an example that we're not going to take things lying down. But there are times we might actually say, don't waste your money hiring a lawyer. We can, you know, give you some preliminary guidance and you can then wrap it up or deal with it. Uh, and there are times where we've, the company has been slapped with huge fines and we've ended up um, being able to negotiate the fines down by several hundreds of thousands of dollars and save uh, the company a whole lot of headache and heartache in the bargain. Um, so we've really been able to work 
and help out and I think just understanding the process, understanding the system, understanding what's reasonable, understanding how the government federal agents look at issues, being able to have a neutral third party negotiate on your behalf can be extremely valuable and and in general, as I always say, a very good doctor, a very good accountant, a very good lawyer in the long term is a huge savings of time, cost, expense and headache. So we would be honored at the Murthy Law Firm to help you. I want to really thank both Adam and Brian for participating today, and we look forward to your continued having a good night's sleep and knowing that you can entrust your complex cases to the brilliant and experienced attorneys at the Murthy Law Firm. Have a wonderful rest of the day.